Luke chapter number 14, already we've read from our text, verse 25 through 35. We find Jesus teaching here that the life of a disciple of Christ is a life lived with a dedication that has no limits. Now, I'll illustrate this to you in a way that's probably going to embarrass somebody, and I can just ask for forgiveness in advance, I guess. But Aunt Redonna is a brave fan with no limits. Amen, Aunt Redonna? All the way. I mean, my, as long as I've known her, and I guess before I ever got to know you, John Denver and the Braves, that's the stuff, right? All right. So I had forgotten this. This week I was over at her house working on something for her, and uh, her and the boys were in the living room, and they were watching the Braves. And I know at my house when the boys watch the Braves, they're awfully noisy and loud. They, they get on my nerves. You know, I want peace and quiet in my house. And I get it, like, sometimes. You know, they win the World Series. All right, let's be loud. But, I mean, just like we strike one guy out. How many guys do they strike out in a night? It's a lot, right? And it's every single night they have these games. But I'm talking the clapping. The clap. They have large hands. The clapping is so loud. And the screaming is so annoying. Oh, it's rough. Just have to get out of the house sometimes and find something else to do. Well, I was at Aunt Redonna's house. And I thought, which of my boys is it being so noisy? Which has the dedication to the Braves being without living. It was Aaron <laughs> And I had been studying this passage and I thought to myself, the way she gets behind the Braves without limits is the way we should be living for Christ. No limits. Total abandon. Completely in love. Passionately following. Doing like, being like. Just all about it. I want to give you three things here from these verses. Jesus teaches us to put God first, to count the cost, and to be salty. Put God first, count the cost, and to be salty. And praise the Lord for mamas and babies in the church. Amen. I love it. I know y'all think I'm just saying that, but I, it is one of my favorite things. I'll pause for a minute and let the baby preach. And then we get back to it. I told someone, we're, we might have a nursery for a little bit. We got chairs. Just move the chairs around you. Make yourself a little playpen. And off you go. It's perfect. Now, if Jason wants to play in the playpen, Joshua, you can't let him. The big kids can't do that. But I, I do love this. One of my favorite preachers is Vody Bauckham. And one of the things I always love when we hear his sermons is you can always hear in the background, you can hear the children. And I just think that's a great thing to, be, to do. So put God first, verses 25 through 27. Let's pray and then we'll get right into this. Father, thank you for time together in your word. Thank you for being together with our church family. We ask your blessing upon this time. Teach us from your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus teaches here that a disciple's life is a life lived, putting God before family. Now, I think it's unique as we start in verse 25 to consider how Jesus addresses this crowd Luke records for us that great multitudes are following him. Look at verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and he said unto them. So he's going to begin teaching, but Luke tells us up front that there's some great multitudes that are following Jesus around, and these are the things that he says to them. And what we just read and what I'm going to preach to you is not Jesus offering a message for the masses. In fact, he does the opposite. He, he begins to teach them about the exclusivity of gospel living. It's backwards to what we might think we should be doing in today's world in the modern church with modern Christian things as if we 
We better be careful not to say this or not to do that or not to go this way or not to go that way. Maybe we shouldn't get on this kind of thing. Why? Shouldn't we be giving truth? Yeah, but we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Well, let me put it to you this way. I don't want to hurt people. But if truth hurts their feelings, I'd rather hurt their feelings and give them truth in love. Because I think long term it hurts people to feed them lies because you don't want to hurt their feelings. You never notice what happens with hurt feelings. You kind of get over them, don't you? Jesus doesn't offer a message for the masses here. I think in the modern era, we've gotten this reversed. Well, tell you what happens, church, when you get the message of the gospel reversed and you begin to make it a message for the masses instead of exclusively, exclusively to those who want to follow Christ, you cheapen grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote with concern about the theology of cheap grace in his day, World War II time. He wrote about cheap grace as an imitation Christianity. As he's writing about this, he mentioned a term that I'd never heard before, and he, he talked about rice Christians. How many of you have ever heard of rice Christians? You've heard that term? Okay, I didn't know if some of you older might have heard that. I had never heard it. But what he was alluding to there were the days on the mission field when people professing to be Christian would be given an extra bowl of rice. We're going to go to the mission field. We're going to feed these people because through feeding them, we get to share the gospel with them. And then any who will profess Christ tonight, they get some more food there. It's cheapening grace. Their Christian faith only as strong as the benefits that they received from professing this faith. What do you think happens when pressure comes or persecution comes? Well, you renounce that faith and you go to whoever's going to give you the extra bowl of rice. When I was a young person, Shanae and I working in youth ministry, we would do a lot of uh, gimmicky type things. They're all her idea. But we would do a lot of gimmicky things to get kids to, to come to the church. And, and I always remember old time preachers would get up and they would kind of hack and spit and slobber and they would preach their sermons. And it would always bug me because here I am, the youth guy in the church. And, you know, we're like, you can win a PlayStation. You can go to Six Flags. You can go to the Braves games. Whatever it is we were doing to keep the youth wanting to come to church. Just as a side note. I did eight years as a youth pastor. I didn't figure out the great way to be a youth pastor. Here's what I figured out. Churches don't need youth pastors. And most of the stuff we did, those kids are not in church anymore. You know, the ones that stuck in church were the ones who'd come over to our house and let us teach them the Bible. They learned the Bible and they decided to stick in church. Just throw that out there to you from experience. But I remember these old time preacher men would get on my nerves because they would say, if you get them in with a hot dog, what's the rest of that line? Anybody know? The devil will get them out with a hamburger. Y'all never heard that? You need to go to the North Georgia Mountains. We went to a funeral in the North Georgia Mountains yesterday. And we, as we were driving home, I was telling the boys lots of stories. And they kept, some of the boys, I think Jack or somebody was trying to watch the Braves or something on their phones. But the little boys were loving this. Dad, tell another story. And finally, Jack said, shut up. I'm sick of the stories. I need to hear what I'm hearing here. But I'll never forget that. And I remember being angry about that and disagreeing with that. But the older I've gotten, the, real, the more I've realized this is the case. If we're not careful, our Christian faith is only as strong as the benefits received from it. What are, the, what are the versions of that currently? We're not offering you an extra bowl of rice this morning. At the end of this service, if you're new here, we're not going to ask you to come down. You're welcome to come. We'd love for you to kneel in this altar and pray if that's what you need to do. We'll pray right with you. We'll put our arms around you. Maybe if you don't want that, we'll put a, a hand on you at a distance or whatever. 
We'll do what you need. We're your brothers and sisters in Christ. But I'm not going to beg you to walk an aisle. We're not going to get you to sign some card. We're not going to try to dip you in the baptistry pool or any of these things so that we can report some numbers. We're an independent Bible church. We don't report numbers anywhere. We just serve the Lord. We love Jesus. We love you. We love the lost even though we hate their sin. And we'll stand firmly against their sinning. Amen? But how do we cheapen grace? I think one example of that is seen in the health and wealth theology of our day. And I know when I say that, you go to the TV preachers. But can I be honest? They're just sort of the rim of that. They're just what is observable. But I promise you in churches just like this, even, even nearby here this morning, it's happening. Desiring health, desiring wealth, some embrace Christianity. Then when sickness comes or poverty comes, their faith formed over bad theology fails and they give up on church or they give up on God. I heard someone talking this week about they used to kind of act. They, they, would, they got into this mentality of I've been wounded by the church. The church has hurt me. Kind of gone through my own little version of that. They said that one of the biggest things that helped them was somebody sat them down and said, you, you say the church has wounded you, but this did the local gathering of the church. I don't know how many people are here today, 75 people or something sitting in here this morning. Did all of these 75 people hurt you? How many people are in the church in this community? Well, how many people really actually hurt you? Well, it was one or, or, or two people. So the church didn't hurt you. Maybe some bad Christians hurt you, but it wasn't the church. It wasn't God. It was these people. And aren't we all bad Christians to some extent? Anybody just raise your hand this morning and say, I'm actually doing a really good job at this. Of all the things I failed out in life, I picked up being a Christian and I'm just mastering it. I'm, I'm wonderful at it. No, you were all happy when I said, how many of you are sinners there? You're like, oh yeah. Never raised my hand in church, but I'll get it on that one. I think we need to keep this in mind as we dig into Jesus' instructions here. On the life of a disciple. Because he's, he's teaching those who are following him how to live. Which indirectly then is teaching us how we should live as his followers. He's speaking to great multitudes. But his teaching begins to describe a life that most of them would not choose to live. Church, what are we doing if we've decided, okay, well, they don't like that passage. But they probably like the other ones. You know, Philippians 4.13. And do all things through Christ. I like those little signs people have to say, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. That's one of my favorites. I, I, I know the thoughts and the plans I have for you, says the Lord. All things work together for good to them who love the Lord. I always love it when I get in a conversation with someone who wants to argue with me about predestination, foreknowledge, and election, but that's their life's verse. You see, Romans 8.28 is right in there when Paul is talking about those whom God foreknew, he predestined and called. What are the things that work together for your good? Those are those things. Because had God not foreknew and elected and predestined, you'd be on your way to hell. So praise God that those things work together for good. But if we're not careful, we, we cheapen grace, we cheapen the scriptures, we we kind of mar the message. 
Let's not do that. Let's just take it as it says and live it as it says. Share it in love as it says. And those who embrace it will embrace it. Those who won't, well, we'll pray for them and we'll keep after them, but we can't make them. It's, it's, uh, the Littons were telling me this is the 11th anniversary of them becoming members of our church. I'm glad you did. Well, Treva, at least. I don't know about Tony yet. The, the jury's still out. <laughs> Just kidding. I love Brother Tony. I hope he knows I love him. I, I started pastoring here the first Sunday of 2011. It's been a while. What does that make that? Like 11 years? Oh, for 11 years, I've been trying to get y'all to say, go dogs. <laughs> but I can't. Probably one of the first people I met when I, well, I probably, not probably, the first person I met here was Todd. You still root for the Vols, Todd? Yeah. yeah oh, you rooting for the dogs? Okay, I'm making some progress. Praise the Lord. When, when people found out we weren't moving back to Georgia, they said, Oh, we, we, we don't want y'all to go to Tennessee. We want you to move back to Georgia. At least to our faces, they said that. And I said, well, I'm going to be a missionary to Tennessee Vols fans. And they said, ooh, 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 ooh. What are we doing? What are we after? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to build bigger barns? Or are we trying to do the kingdom work that we've been given through the Great Commission to the Gospel? So Jesus is speaking to multitudes. He's teaching about a life that many will not choose. We understand through this that Jesus is more concerned with quantity, quality than quantity. I like how Warren Wiersbe lays this out because if we're not careful, we do get way too into the quality end of things and we sort of let that be an excuse to not be evangelistic. I mean, I didn't even ask you to be evangelistic this morning. I said there's this... Amazing lady who has a wonderful story to tell about her husband being martyred. Go give this to someone in your neighborhood and tell them about it. They'll probably remember her and will come, want to come hear what she has to say. And some of you are like, oh, I don't know. I'll talk to him about the weather and the Titans, but I don't know about that. That wasn't even asked you to be evangelistic. See, if we're not careful, we get, to, we get deep into the doctrine of predestination and we leave off the doctrine of Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Wearsby lays it out this way in this passage. He says, in, in the matter of saving lost souls, Jesus wants his house to be filled. Verse 23, we had that last week. And the Lord said unto the servant, go into all the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And then Wearsby continues, but in the matter of personal discipleship, he wants only those who are willing to pay the price. I say amen to that. So what does Jesus teach? Verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. As bad as this may hurt you to hear it or to think about it, what Jesus is saying here is, my disciples will hate their family. Now pause. Some of you with daddy issues or family issues of some sort, you've been feuding with a sister for years, don't make this your new life verse. I see some of you grinning back there in a very sinister manner. You're underlining this verse and saying, yes, I got one. I don't have to make right with them. Yes, you do. There's plenty of verses about how we should love our family. Jesus is, in some ways, he's speaking literally here, but I think probably this is more hyperbole. He's intentionally exaggerating to make a point, a crucial point. 
Now, Jesus has already said about love here. In fact, he goes so far as not even just to love your family. Who did he already tell us in Luke we should love? Our enemies. Had to bring that one back up again. Scripture other places teaches us to honor our parents, to care for our family. But I think we understand in the literal sense, should your family resist your life of discipleship, that's going to lead to a breakdown of that family relationship. Even so much of what we might say, well, they kind of hate each other now. That's the literal sense. But I think as we think of hyperbole here, Jesus is saying it like this. He's pointing out the seriousness of a disciple's life. R.C. Sproul says Jesus is saying that if one is going to follow him and be his disciples, that in comparison to the love and devotion that one must have for Christ, the love for our parents or our dearest friends could be seen as hate. That's exactly it. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, you'll hate your father, your mother, your sister, brother, even your own life. What does he mean there? That you're going to just be mean to these people? No, that's not what he means. He, you're still going to be loving them. You're still going to be honoring your parents because that's obeying a biblical command. But you're going to be so loving Jesus and obeying Jesus' commands that it might seem like you're being disrespectful to your family at times. It may seem like you're putting off family things. A lot of the things we call family things and we try to make them biblical are just family traditions that we've had for years and we say this is what you're supposed to do. Well, why is it that you're supposed to do this? I had an argument recently with one of you about turkey at Thanksgiving. This is how I spend my time. And the idea was, why do you have turkey at Thanksgiving? Because you're supposed to. Well, why are you supposed to have turkey? I don't know. Just because you always have. Do you like turkey? Well, kind of. Once a year, I like turkey. It's pretty good. Wouldn't you rather have steak at Thanksgiving? Well, sure. So we're starting a movement. Everybody else that wants to have steak at Thanksgiving instead of turkey. We've got, we got some people. There's some cards in the back. We'll sign you up today when you go. It's $99 a year. <laughs> there I go with that health and wealth prosperity preaching. We, we have these things, these family values, we call them. Well, here's a family value you should embrace with your family. I'm going to love Jesus so much that even though you're my brother, at times it might seem like I don't love you at all. Even though I do. I'm just going to be that in love with Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. We are to love him without reservation to the point that all other loves seem to be hatred by comparison. Matthew 10, 37 says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Family ties should never deflect a disciple from a pathway of full obedience to the Lord. Family ties should never deflect you from a pathway of full obedience to Jesus Christ, your Lord. He goes further in verse at the end of verse 26 and then in verse 27, as he says, and his own life also. And whosoever cannot bear doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So a disciple's life is secondly a life lived putting God before self. So it's a, it's a life lived putting God before family. And then it's a life lived putting God before self. Jesus illustrates that here with a life of cross bearing. A total sacrifice of everything. So he starts this line of thinking in verse 26. And his own life also. So our love for Christ should be so that it seems we hate our family. And then even more so that it seems we hate our own life. 
This means living a Christ-centered life instead of living a self-centered life. And Jesus doesn't leave any gray area here. He doesn't leave any room for halfway measures of devotion to Him. You're either totally devoted or you are not totally devoted. It's the things that we used to hear as youth or maybe we used to teach to the youth about there's no, uh, there's no gray area in serving the Lord. You've got to be completely sold out to the Lord. You can't be a fence rider. You can't straddle a fence. You've got to be on one side or on the other side. This is what Jesus is teaching here. And at times, this means putting aside even your own personal comfort or maybe even your own personal safety for the task of glorifying God and making Christ known. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, 25, 26 reads, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited? If he shall gain the whole world, and you know the rest, and lose his own soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now to properly take that in this morning, you must remind yourself that this life is only a vapor. That it's sort of a blip on the radar of all of eternity. So what Jesus is teaching here is as if in this momentary instance of time that you call your whole life, it seems so long to us now, but man, what is that up against eternity? If you'll give up your own self for his sake, you will gain an eternal life that is far beyond you could ever imagine. But if instead you say, no, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get after it in this life. I'm going to do all of these things because I want to have it right just now. In this life, he says, actually what you're going to do when you choose the world's ways over God's ways, you're going to lose all of those eternal rewards. Flip back in Luke to chapter 9. Now we've, we've already dealt with this. Hold your place in chapter 14. And I just want to remind you what we've already went through in chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. It's very similar to what we're reading here. It's very similar to what we read in Matthew chapter number 16. 9.22, Luke records saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised a third day. So we're going to talk about cross-bearing here, right? I want you to remember that the people that Jesus is talking to, at least his disciples here, have already been told exactly what he means by cross-bearing. And I think they knew through their culture. Verse 23, he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, how often? Every single day. And follow me. For whosoever save his life shall lose it. Whosoever loses life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall, shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. We'll go back to Luke 14. I think we need to define here what we mean by cross-bearing. Even before the crucifixion of Christ, the cross was not what we have it pictured as here this morning. We, we, we put it in its glory, right? Because Christ certainly glorified his cross. But, but to these ears, as Jesus is teaching this, the cross was a symbol of rejection, 
humiliation and excruciating pain. That's what the cross meant to them. As Jesus says here in verse 27, whoever will bear his cross and come after me can't be my disciple. He's saying to them, if you're not willing to be rejected and humiliated and and maybe even suffer excruciating pain as I'm going to, well, then you can't be my disciple. And he's not promising them that you for sure will have to. He says to be my disciple is to be willing to. Phil Riken notes here, to see a man carrying his cross was to see a man going to die the worst of all possible deaths in their day and age. This is, this is what they knew about the cross. So those hearing this teaching would have at least known this. Even if they couldn't understand all the other implications wrapped up in discipleship to Christ, they would understand when he says, if you don't hate your family and hate your own life and aren't willing to bear a cross, then you can't be my disciples. We read in Luke 9 where they'd been told exactly what this would mean for Jesus. And here he lays that out from just his disciples to, to this multitude. To follow Christ is to follow him in cross-bearing. I think we need to consider is this true even now? We know at times throughout church history this has been true. It's been literal. There were those burned at the stake. There were those hung on crosses. They faced all sorts of suffering up to even dying for their faith for some. I think we're, we're probably one of the most blessed generations throughout church history being able to freely live as Christians without fear as we are able to do. But I also don't think we should be foolish to think that it's always going to be like this. I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll always be like this. I'm also hopeful that Georgia will win another national championship in football this year. But given our track record, I've got to wait 40 years now. And we study church history. And sure, there were good times for the church, but there were lots of bad times for the church. What are we, what are we going to do if that happens? We're we just going to say, all right, that's that. We're going to run to caves and hide out and, and just wait for the Lord because we're not to be the church anymore. No, we're to be the church triumphant and militant, especially in the face of persecution. I'm willing to bear my cross when it's easy, but... Am I willing to bear the cross, his cross, when it's rough, when it's hard? The image of cross bearing reminds us that we have given up any claims to our lives. Cross bearers are prepared to face any kind of suffering for Christ, even to the point of martyrdom. Do you do you have cross jewelry on this morning? Maybe a cross on your car somewhere. We've got these crosses here in our windows. Ours doesn't. A lot of pulpits have a cross here. The, the idea in church history of that was we'll, we'll hide the preacher man behind the cross. Let him just preach Christ to us, not himself. All of this is well and good. But I want us to consider this morning and remind ourselves, is this what we mean by identifying with Christ's cross? Are we saying that I identify with a a beautiful stained glass red cross and I identify with a beautiful golden jewelry cross and and I'm fine if that's all it ever gets to. Are we saying I identify with a bloody stump of wood that the very God of heaven became man and bled and died on for my sins because that's what it took. And if that's what it means in my life to follow him and serve him, I'll do the same. Are we just saying, well, you know, I pick on girls here, but I just think this looks cute. Goes with these earrings. 
And my friends wear crosses, so I'm going to wear crosses too. And I'm not telling you not to wear crosses. And I'm not telling you not to identify with the cross. I'm telling you to identify with the cross. But meaning daily dying to yourself, taking up your cross and following Him. And give us a word of caution here. Because we often refer to cross-bearing, especially as Christians. And we refer to it up against some hardship in life that isn't spiritual. A disability, a bad health for a time, a financial circumstance, relational issues. And we'll say this line, well, this is just my cross to bear. I'm not telling you that's wrong. I think that's fine. And we all understand what we mean there. But that's not what Jesus means here. That's the clarification we need to make here. In the context of the passage, Jesus talking about being willing to hate your own life and bear your cross is not what we would typically think of when we say, well, this is just my cross to bear. This is not that. You think back to the disciples and the multitude that Jesus is teaching, they would have clearly understood the direct implications of this teaching in their lives. To follow him is to bear a cross like him. There's a New Testament scholar that I I like very well how he says this. He says, the people to whom Jesus spoke those words fully realized that he meant thereby that whosoever desires to follow him must be willing to hate his own life and even to be crucified by the Roman authorities for the sake of his fidelity to him. And then R.C. Sproul is much more direct as he often was, says, Jesus is not talking about general participation in suffering or in bearing the problems and anxieties of daily experience. Instead, he is making a clear reference to martyrdom. Unless people were prepared to become martyrs, they could not be his disciples. How do you think a gospel crusade would go if you filled a stadium full of people and said, all right, if you're willing to be martyred, you can go to heaven. Come on down this morning. Be a little different, wouldn't it? And I don't mean to take it to that extreme and say, well, that's exactly how I was saved. And anybody wasn't saved that way, you're not saved, you can't be. That's not the point. The point is reminding ourselves of what Christianity means, what living the life of the disciple of Christ is. Often it's simply this willingness to that end. And all the while, we just live a life of blessing. Are you willing to starve for the gospel? Fine, that's great. But now we've got a, a, a fridge full of food. Go eat to your heart's delight. Don't, glut, don't be a glutton, but you know, other than that. Are you willing to suffer physical harm for the gospel? Great, but, but you don't have to today, so go be gospel witnesses without any physical pain. There again, praise the Lord for the blessed time that we the church live in, but let's not take the blessed time that we the church live in and just let it let us, cause us to forget cross-bearing truly is. Now I want you to note the parallel here in these verses. Verse 26, read it again. If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sister, yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus says a disciple lives in such a way that it seems he hates his own life. He loves this life and his family less than he loves Jesus. Then in verse 27, he goes to say, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So those disciples of Christ are willing to be put to death for their cause, just like he was. J.C. Ryle preached this in this passage. He says, the man who does well for himself is the man who gives up everything for Christ's sake. He makes the best of bargains. He carries the cross for a few years in this world and in the world to come has everlasting life. Pretty good bargain. 
He obtains the best of possessions. He carries his riches with him beyond the grave. He is rich in grace here and he is rich in glory hereafter. And best of all, what he obtains by faith in Christ, he never loses. It is that good part which is never taken away. So Jesus teaches here in verses 25 through 27 on the disciples' life. And I would say specifically he teaches here that a disciple's life has consequences. It can isolate you and separate you from those closest to you. It means rejecting self-interest in exchange for dedication to Jesus. It means that to be a disciple is to have a full-time commitment to Christ. Nothing should modify, interrupt, or compete with this in your life. Now, already at this point, and we haven't gotten to Jesus' illustrations, I think some of you are already convicted because you're saying to yourself, since I've been saved, I've compromised in this area of my living. I've chosen self-interest. I've chosen people over my commitment to Christ. Well, the good news there, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. God didn't have you sit under a message talking about the disciples' life just to make you feel crummy for the choices you made in your life. It was so that you can change and live differently from here on out. So admit to Him, ask His forgiveness, and pattern your life differently so you're not walking that way anymore. Walk His way, and this will be a sincere change for you. Now, Jesus illustrates this with three parables, and the parables won't take very long, so I'll give you these and then we'll go home. The first two have to do with counting the cost. So you have a builder and a king. Verse 28 through 30. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish it. So who would build a tower? without first planning the cost to finish it. Do you remember, and this, it was this way since I moved here, and Scotty pointed it out to me the other day, it's gone now, but over in Bellevue, across from the old Shoney's building, there was that building there forever. We always wondered what they were going to build there, you know. Is it going to be a bank? Is it going to be a Bob Evans? Is it, what's it going to be there, you know? And they were building and building, and they stopped, and then they wrapped it up, and I heard that they were going to come back and finish it later, and we went by the other day, and Scotty said, oh, they've demolished that building. I said, they sure did. I don't know, make fun or criticize or anything. You know, whatever happened, happened. But this is kind of the idea here. Did you start without counting the costs and thus you're not able to finish? Jesus illustrates with that. And then verse 31 and 32, he says, Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, or else while other is yet a great way off. He sendeth an, what's that word? Ambassage? We read that in the responsive reading and I got confused. I know what it means. He sent a group of people, his ambassadors. Anybody else have another word there? No, nothing. Okay. And desireth conditions of peace. Now pause for just one second. Okay. In, in discipleship living, Jesus is contrasting this up against pharisaical living. Let me tell you how you must be careful as you live as a Christian. Church going, Bible-toting, tie-wearing, Christian. I'm the only one in here. Well, me and Scott, the only ones with ties on this morning. Anybody else want to be bragging about you wearing a tie? Parker got his bow tie on this morning. Nice job, Parker. <laughs> the rest of you are just our, our level. And I know you're like, yeah, to your level of crazy. Yeah, yeah, I get it. 
We, get re- we can get all free religious. Then we begin to read our Bibles with presumption. We begin to be- read our Bibles with presumption. We let our minds tell us it means what I want it to mean. It means what I think it should mean. If you're a Jew and you've been waiting on your Messiah to come as conquering king and run off the Romans, how did you hear those verses? He said, oh, he's talking about it finally. He's getting militant. He's our king. He's letting us know he has a plan. He's recruiting these multitudes because he's going to enable us to kick the Romans out. And he's going to sit on his throne and be the king of the Jews. It's exactly how they would have heard that. This is not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying to them, you're following me around because I'm feeding you and I'm doing miracles and you like some of the things I'm saying. You're thinking things about me that maybe you're not going to like how I end up my life. You've got other plans for me. So I think you should count the cost. So the second illustration is what king would go to war without first sufficiently determining his ability to win the war? We understand the answer to both of these is rhetorical. So we wouldn't do that. But these great multitudes have become fans of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is bringing them to think about how they truly considered the cost of following him, of being his disciples. Church, we're bad to do this. We take a little child and we we get them in a Sunday school class and we teach them about Adam and Eve in some almost just vague sense, right? I'll tell you how vague it is. I grew up in a pretty, pretty conservative Bible church. And I was pushing 30 years old before I would embrace the doctrine of total depravity. Even though I'd been taught Adam and Eve for my whole life. I, I had philosophically, through a school system, through world values, I had come to the conclusion of man is basically good. We're not that bad, but we mess up sometimes and Jesus fixes our, our mess ups. I was old staff at a church. And I said, oh, this, this doctrine of total depravity, that's this bunch of fatalistic hyper-Calvinists and, you know, they're just mad at the world anyways. They're the bland leading the bland. They can't be right. The more I, the more I read my Bible, the more I got honest about myself, I said, well, I don't know if everybody else is totally depraved, but chance sure is. And I got to thinking about just in Sunday school curriculum written by nice folks who seem to love the Bible enough to give their whole life to write Bible curriculum for kids. Didn't quite lay out for me at six years old that I was totally depraved because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Romans 5.12 is a good proof text for that if you don't believe me. As by one man sin came into the world, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There's this, I guess they're essays, but they're, they made them into books. Like one is, why can't Johnny sing hymns? Why can't Johnny sit still in church? Why did Johnny leave church when he was 18 years old? It's all about this little Johnny. And they're kind of picking at the church and kind of some of our mess ups that we have right now. Why is little Johnny abandoning the faith? It's because little Johnny never had the faith to start with. Because we taught little Johnny that if you'll walk the aisle, if you say this prayer, if you'll get baptized, if you'll nod your head when the 
the adults in your life ask the right questions and everything will be all right and you'll, you'll have done the right things. But Jesus is teaching here that that's just not the case. What Jesus is teaching here is that if little Johnny's not ready to embrace that I am destined to burn an eternal damnation in hell for the rest of my life if I don't have a Savior to pull me from that. And it's not this, I was floating along aimlessly on the sea holding on to a life raft and hoping somebody came to get me. No, it's I was dead, rotting flesh at the bottom of that sea and could do nothing should Jesus come down and pick me up out of that. David said, I was in a horrible pit and he, he lifted me out and set my feet upon a rock and he established my goings. Paul said to the Ephesians, he made you alive though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus is, he's not trying to build his kingdom here by oversimplifying the demands of discipleship. And neither should we. And, and there's this urgency we have, and I appreciate the urgency. Well, we want the kids to get saved. But yes, we do. Amen? Well, should we also not want them to make false professions? And that goes for kids and adults and anybody. But I'll just say in churches like ours, the, the easiest prey is usually the children. We oversimplify the demands of discipleship. And I, I prayed and asked the Lord to save me. 11 years old. And they baptized me. And I practiced all of these things. By immersion. It was in a pool. I know some of you think it's got to be in a river, so... One day, if I ever get over to Israel, I'll get the Jordan River and you can, you can rebaptize me if you're there with me that day. But in reality, what I came to find as I've progressed in my life was that those things were religious rituals. And, and they were good steps to take, no doubt. But when I really began to embrace my relationship with Jesus, it wasn't at, at 11 when I knelt and asked the Lord to save me. It was at 13 and then maybe 15 when the Lord began to lay on my heart to, to go into ministry. And I had to decide, did I want to give up my life to do what he was calling me to do? Or did I want to keep doing what I was wanting to do? Now, that's my story. Yours is a little bit different than that. But I think all of us are put to this choice at some point. Am I going to live the life of a disciple? Or am I going to live the life of me? Jesus is clearly communicating here before any of you. In the excitement of these moments. And boy, they were in some exciting moments. Healing people, casting out demons, miraculously feeding people. Before any of you in the excitement of these moments, before any of you in the energy of these crowds, there's nothing like the energy of a crowd, is there? Woo-hoo, go team. You can do that at church, you know, get to singing about being glad to be saved and redeemed and all this. And you might have come here just because somebody kind of twisted your arm this morning, but you get here and you see these excited people say, well, I could, I could get in behind some of this. Well, Jesus says, before you in the excitement of these moments and in the energy of these crowds, de declare you're going to follow me. What I ask you to do is to count the cost. If a man was going to build a tower, he would count the cost and make sure he had enough to be able to finish it. If a king was going to go to war, he would count the cost and make sure he was able to win that war. Or it's best just to not go to war at all. And I would remind you, saints, there's a great confidence in Scripture in regard for the Christian because God counted the cost for us and He paid the price. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, 
that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now there is a second thing that Jesus says in these parables. Go back to verse 32. So 28, 29, 30, 31. You'd count the cost before building a tower. You'd count the cost before going to war. But 32 is a little bit different. He says, while the other is yet a great way off. So he's a king ready to go to war, but the other, the, his enemies are a great way off. He sends this group of people and desires conditions of peace. What, what's Jesus saying here? What does he, does he mean there? If verse 31 is communicating a king should count the cost and determine if he can go to war, then verse 32 would be communicating a king must consider the situation and count the cost and deserve, determine if he can afford not to seek a peace, peace treaty. Hear what Jesus is saying here. Count the cost of following him, but also count the cost of not following him. Before you can declare yourself a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, count the cost. But, but if you decide this morning, I, you know, okay, he preached that sermon, it'll be something next week, and, and that's it for me, in one ear, out the other. Then I would encourage you this morning to, to count the cost of not following Christ. In 1997, NASA was involved in this, this motto of faster, better, cheaper. And they were planning a series of missions to Mars. And that was their motto, faster, better, cheaper. They were going to send a, a, some kind of device to Mars every two years. They were kind of in this, they were going to quickly do whatever it is we're trying to do with Mars. I'm not exactly sure. In December of 99, they sent the Mars Polar Lander. And while it was landing, it failed to slow on its descent and it just hit the surface of Mars and it, it just smashed into thousands of pieces. They later, through research, determined that this was caused by a design flaw in this $165 million spacecraft that caused the braking system to shut off too soon. They worked fine, but the computer software and the computers involved in telling it when to turn on, when to turn off, Turned off too soon. This breaking, breaking, breaking. Okay, we're there. And we weren't there. The brakes stopped doing their thing. And bam, just smashed right into there. And $165 million is sitting up on Mars now in millions of pieces. According to the engineers at NASA, this flaw could have been detected and prevented. And if only they had run the right simulation on their computers. When they were asked, why didn't you run this simulation on their computers? They, they mentioned faster, better, cheaper and said we were trying to cut costs so we didn't purchase this necessary software so we just didn't see it as necessary they did it faster they did it cheaper they didn't do it better and they failed to count the cost for completing this mission this is a mistake that jesus wants you and i these multitudes his disciples here to 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 avoid to be careful about He's already counted the cost for us, and he tells us in advance here. The last thing the world needs is Christians who have not counted the cost of Christian life and are unprepared to live it fully. The world does not need more half-hearted Christians. The world needs a group of people so sold out that they look upon us and they think to themselves, these are people living like Jesus did. The early church lived this way and operated this way. And it was said of some of them, these that have turned the world upside down are come here as well. Acts 17, 6. So Jesus illustrates with these two 
illustrations of counting the cost. And then he illustrates in verse 33 through 35, just through the simple idea of being salty in our lives. Verse 33, so likewise, whoever, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill. But men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now understand some things. The salt we use in our days can rarely lose its saltiness. But the salt that they had then and was used for a lot of different things that maybe we wouldn't even now uh, could kind of expire, could kind of use, lose its usefulness. So a little more relevant of an example. It's funny, though, how our salt probably plays out better here in Jesus' illustration. What's the primary characteristic of salt? Any cooks in here this morning? What do you, why do you use salt when you cook? Okay. Is it because you want to taste the salt? No. Why do you put salt on something? It enhances the flavor of whatever it is that you want to taste. And then the second thing of salt is it preserves. That's exactly right. We'll get through this point quick. Y'all have already got it figured out. What is Jesus saying here? The very essence of being for salt is to be salty. Salt that is not salty is useless. If we're not willing to love Christ more than we're willing to love this life, we are useless. We cannot be His disciple. Well, how can we live salty lives? Or as some people would say, how can we be worth our salt? Salt enhances flavor and salt is used as a preservative. So enhance the lives of those around you by living as Christ did. Add His flavor to your lives. And certainly we know that that has a preserving effect. Be salty. This is Jesus' teaching on a disciple's life. A disciple lives in a way that seems like he hates his family and hates his own life because he puts God first. A disciple counts the cost of discipleship living. And a disciple lives a life that is, has the same effect as salt and on those around us. John Calvin once said, I gave up all for Christ, and what have I found? I have found everything in Christ. Henry Drummond commented, The entrance fee into the kingdom of heaven is nothing. The annual subscription is everything. It will cost you everything to follow Christ. But His grace is free. This is the disciple's life. Put God first. Count the cost and be salty. Let's stand and pray.